Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. In April 2017, the Chinese Communist Party authorities in Xinjiang launched a series of strike-hard campaigns against illegal births, with the explicit aim to reduce and stabilise a moderate birth level and decrease the birth rate of southern Xinjiang. The crackdown has led to an unprecedented and precipitous drop, and the largest declines have been in counties where Uyghurs and other indigenous communities are concentrated. Here to discuss these trends and the implications is Professor James Leibold, head of the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe University, and a senior fellow at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Thank you for joining me, James. Great to be back with you, Matt. At the outset, this research has been published in a report for ASPE, which you've co-authored with Nathan Rusa from ASPE. So can you tell me a bit about the background of that? Yeah, so I was approached by ASPE two years ago to head up a large new research project that is called the Xinjiang Data Project. And the project sought to look at and document the ongoing brutal crackdown that the Chinese Communist Party has initiated in Xinjiang, principally targeting its indigenous populations such as the Uyghurs. Mm. And so we've been working collaboratively with a team. There's a, a core team of four researchers on the project, and we've brought in contractors and work quite collaboratively with other colleagues at ASPE as well to initiate a series of research reports. And this is our most recent one mm. um, and one of the last ones because the project will be coming to an end at the end of October. And this one in particular seems to be driven by the data. Yeah, the data. And also, this is something I really wanted to look into. I remember pitching this idea to my colleagues at ASPE when I first joined and not getting much enthusiasm for it. But uh, really, the core work of it was my colleague, Nathan Rooser, who is a wonderfully brilliant polymath who came to me and said, hey, I've got all these statistics. And they show really interesting things about the declining birth rate you know, what should we do with it? Mm. I was really excited about what he found and, you know, his meticulous nature and sort of collecting these data, which is all Chinese government data, not our data. It was just then analyzed in a way in which was able to look at trends of decline of birth rate in a novel way. And it's kind of complex. It's the way the Chinese government reports on birth rates is complicated and it's not straightforward. It doesn't say, here's the birth rate for Uyghurs, here's the birth rate for Hans or Kazakhs, but rather it reports crude birth rate at a county level for all groups. Yeah. But then if we looked at, we triangulated that, the indigenous population in particular counties to document the way in which this uh, campaign was really targeted at indigenous communities. And then we looked at policy documents to also round out that picture as well. Okay, so if we could at the outset uh, just have a little bit of context of the Uyghur, an ethnic minority living primarily in the Xinjiang province, what has been happening to them? What is the justification? Yeah, so there's around 12 million Uyghurs that live overwhelmingly in the northwest uh, region known as the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Many Uyghur people call the East Turkestan or the homeland of the Uyghur people. Mm. It's located as in the far west. Parts of it are closer to Moscow than they are to Beijing. It's a sparsely populated region. Its demography, roughly speaking, 40% Han majority, 40% Uyghur, and then the remaining 20% other indigenous ethnic minorities. And this is a region that until 
the late Qing dynasty was largely outside of Chinese state control, but beginning in the late Qing dynasty, it was brought into Chinese state control through a colonial project that continues to this day. Mm. And like all colonial projects, that's resulted in resistance to Chinese rule. And beginning in 2016, in, in response to that resistance, we've seen really an unprecedented crackdown in the region that has many dimensions to it. Ultimately, though, it seeks to fundamentally alter the physical and social landscape of Xinjiang, but it includes uh, things like the mass extrajudicial internment of Uyghurs and other indigenous people, ubiquitous and highly intrusive surveillance, the systematic erasure of indigenous culture, language, and religious practices, the incarceration of large portions of the indigenous population, labor transfer schemes that, that rip Uyghurs and others out of their local community, and finally, a set of eugenics policies that we focused on in this report that seek to dilute in the size and the concentration of the indigenous population. And that's a rather loaded term, I guess, uh, eugenics, but you use a number of pointed terms in this report to try and convey just how serious the situation is, I think, and how deliberate it is. But if you look at the reasoning of the Chinese Communist Party, they seem to be saying that this is very uniform how we are applying these laws, these efforts to restrict population, to control population across China. Yeah, so the term they use in Chinese is yuhua. It's hard to translate. We've translated it in the report as optimize. Seek to optimize the population structure of Xinjiang. Yeah. Now, yuhua literally means to make superior. So that assumes that there's a problem here, right? There's something that's inferior. And that inferior population structure is several fold in the eyes of the Chinese Communist Party. The Uyghurs and other indigenous people are chiefly concentrated in rural parts of southern Xinjiang. You know, so some counties in, in southern Xinjiang have a minority population or a Uyghur population of 99% plus. So that concentration is seen as being inferior the other problem is that there are high birth rates in indigenous communities and low education rates. And so these are seen as inferior characteristics. And so the eugenic set of population policies seeks to alter that by coercive family planning is, is just one aspect of it. The other aspects are encouraging migration of Han people into mm. southern Xinjiang, pulling Uyghurs and others out of southern Xinjiang for work or education. And so ultimately what it wants to do is kind of dilute in the concentration of the indigenous population in the south and transform, as I said, the kind of social and physical landscape of the region. The key to that, I guess, is that word optimize. It literally means, in this case, trying to play with the percentages almost. Yeah, yeah. To alter the percentages, alter people's behavior, Yeah, alter the social and physical landscape. Quite a uh, multi-pronged project that you know, no single policy alone will accomplish. But what is quite remarkable when you look at the policy documents is the incredible energy and amount of resources the Chinese party state has put into this project over a sustained period of time. And we're starting to see the pretty dramatic results. And one of those highlighted in this report is the dramatic decline of birth rates. So in Xinjiang, here we're talking about crude birth rate goes from being similar to that of neighboring countries like Kazakhstan and Mongolia uh, down to one slightly above that of Japan. 
the deep irony here, Matt, is that China, as many listeners will know, in 1979 launched the one child policy, mm -hmm. uh, which is probably the most coercive and longest running of the Chinese Communist Party's campaigns. Up until 2016, when they shifted to a, a two child policy, it continues to be in place. And the results have been remarkably effective, but so effective that China now worries about the fact that it's got a looming demographic crisis. You know, fertility rates are below replacement level, about 1.3 for average for a woman, which is below the two for a standard replacement rate. China is essentially growing old before it grows rich. Mm -hmm. and this is creating deep concern. And so while you have a loosening of controls over reproductive rights across China, in the case of Xinjiang, we see the opposite, where there is an incredible crackdown in Xinjiang, where in the past, policy was quite loose and minorities were given exemptions. Now the party is implementing its family planning rules in a way which is quite similar to the way they used to do it with the Han and just as coercive. What's the reality of that then? How is this manifested in Xinjiang? Yeah, so what I like to call the toolkit of coercive family planning in Xinjiang, it's not that dissimilar to the, the policy that was used in the past amongst the Han, but it, at its forefront, it's the imposition of hefty fines mm. for anybody that has a so-called illegal birth above the quota. But in addition, in the case of uh, Xinjiang, you also have the looming threat of extrajudicial detention that hangs over the head of any Uyghur woman who is willing to have extra births above the quota allotted to them. And we have examples. There are government documents, one in particular, the Caracax document, that was a leaked document that showed that the number one reason for a woman to be detained in these re-education camps was having too many births. Yeah, okay. And I guess the reality is, in the numbers, the declining birth rates shows that people are frightened enough to take this seriously. Yeah, I mean, the statistics show that, you mm. know, when you see a precipitous drop in birthright, that shows the effectiveness of this policy. Mm. Um, and really, they have mobilized as kind of a whole of uh, society response. I mean, one of the other key aspects of their toolkit of repression is to ensure strict enforcement of family planning laws. laws. In the past, there were, a lot of officials would turn a blind eye. That's no longer possible. They've made expulsion from the party or from state government positions to be a key aspect of any violation. They've uh, called upon ordinary citizens to exercise mass supervision by daubing in their neighbors or their local party official yeah. if they discover extra births. So it's really been able to kind of draw upon some of the new uh, technologies of surveillance and control, which in some ways makes it more effective and maybe even more inhumane than um, the previous family planning approach as it relates to the Han and the one-child policy. How effective has this been then? We've said that the rate has declined. What exactly is it at now? This is where the difficult statistical work, because the Chinese government doesn't make it easy to work that out. And we'll never know, probably, yeah. uh, what the decline of the Uyghur birth rate has been, because it's just not reported. Those figures aren't publicly available, but we could look at it from Xinjiang wide, as I said, it's gone from around 20 children per thousand population. This is how crude birth rates are reported yeah. down to around seven per thousand. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's Xinjiang wide. But one of the things we did with the data is we tried to look at counties that had a 50% indigenous population 
or 90% indigenous population, we saw that it, it's declined more than 50% over the two-year period of 2017 to 2019. Yeah. And the reason we stopped in 2019 is because essentially in 2020, the government stopped releasing birthright statistics for Xinjiang. Wow. We got earlier this year a copy of this um, Xinjiang statistical yearbook that we were using, uh, looking forward to seeing the new results, and they simply changed all the tables. Mm. reported on urbanization rates instead of birth rates. The Chinese government doesn't dispute this. I mean, we've got a section where you look at the kind of Chinese government response. And it's complicated because there's definitely misinformation campaigns. Mm. You know, they often talk about population figures generally to kind of distract from the decline in the birth rate amongst the Uyghur population. But China's leading sociologist, a woman named Li Xiaosha, she admits it in a report that the birth rates amongst Uyghurs have declined sharply. Her reason is that the strict implementation of the family planning rules. Her argument is, though, that it's not coercive. It's all voluntary. That women, you know, have realized the beauty of living a modern life and have decided to forego those births. Ultimately, I don't think there's any disputing the decline in birth rates. It's a question of, is it coercive or is it voluntary? Yeah. Our argument, and this is where I think our analysis of government documents demonstrate that this is highly coercive. This is what it all hinges on, really, because if it is coercive, then that toes the line of eugenics. So where does this coincide with international law then? How is this being viewed in international law circles? That's a really nettlesome question. As you're well aware, the issue of what's happening in Xinjiang and uh, to the Uyghur people in particular has become highly politicized. Uh, we have governments across the world making determinations of genocide in Xinjiang. I'm not a legal scholar. I don't feel comfortable in referring to what's happening in Xinjiang as genocide I'm on the public record there. I don't have a problem with the word cultural genocide as kind of Lemkin, who coined the term, first uh, used it. But I think by kind of getting caught up on the kind of semantics, is it or isn't it genocide, we can lose focus of actually what's happening on the ground, the real human tragedy, mm. you know, which is far more complex and insidious than any determination of genocide. And there I'm perhaps out of step with some of my colleagues, but for me, I'm more interested in kind of documenting what is happening. And I will leave it to international legal experts and policymakers to decide how they want to describe what's happening as well as what they want to do about what's happening. Okay, well, let's talk about that then, because there has been a lot more international exposure to what's been happening to the Uyghur people since, uh, well, at least the last time I sat down and did a podcast with you on such topics. So from your perspective, is there any movement there that is going to affect things to make things better for the Uyghurs? Oh, I, I'm not that optimistic on that front, yeah. um, Matt, sadly. These sorts of policies take time to have their full effect. We've now seen this crackdown going on since 2016. Uh, arguably, you could say it actually began in 2014 or even before that. It's certainly having an impact on the community. We'll probably never know the full extent of the impact. China shows no signs of easing up. If anything, they believe that their policies are successful, they're doing mm. everything they're intended to do, and they have no intention of changing course. If anything, I think international pressure, criticism, sanction just causes them to dig in their heels. Now, I don't think that means that we should just stay quiet 
you know, I do think we've got a kind of moral obligation to speak out, to name and shame China publicly on this. Sure, there are a range of things we can do from legislation to sanctions to boycotting the Winter Olympic Games. I'm in favor of all those measures because I believe we do have to try to uh, keep the pressure on the Chinese government. But ultimately, I think it's also important to remember that the real tragedy here is what's happening to the people on the ground. Mm. I don't know how to help them. There are limits to what a humble kind of academic like myself uh, can do. As I said before, I'm more interested in kind of documenting this for posterity's sake, you know, and making sure I do it in a way that's empirically rigorous, morally ethical. I'll leave it to the historians and the politicians to decide what to do after that. Mm. So do you think then that China's just going to become more emboldened? They are being a lot more evasive on what they are doing, I think is one way to put it. But they're also seeing less repercussions simply because tariffs are being applied for trade reasons. And the plight of the Uyghurs seems to be just one more thing counting against China. If you apply a tariff for the Uyghurs, how does it apply less to what's going on with Hong Kong? just seems to be yet another thing. Yeah, and you get lost in kind of moral cul-de-sacs as well because... Sure, what's happening to the Uyghurs is terrible, but what about the Palestinians? Mm. Or what about the Rohingya before? You know, I mean, all these things are human tragedies, and we do need a kind of common set of universal human rights to guide us. And I think, you know, we have a set of documents that I think are good operating principles to hold international actors to account. Yeah. But we need to make sure that we call them out across the globe that we don't allow this issue to become this politicized cudgel that's used to, you know, hit the Chinese government over the head with mm. as a part of some larger geostrategic competition. I'm not in the business of that. That's not my interest. You know, long before anybody was uh, looking what's happening in Xinjiang, I was visiting the region and studying its policies there. I've been studying its ethnic policies for over 25 years. I'm just sitting here watching these remarkable changes and trying to kind of document them. Is there a question that you have left on the table, like something that you wanted answered about the Uyghurs, about these sort of policies or about the experience that they're going through? I wish we had unfettered access to the region. Of course, yeah. You know, I wish I could return. I was last there in 2014. But if I'm to take the Chinese government on its word, I should go back and see a, a remarkably happy, peaceful country with all these smiling, singing, and dancing ethnic minorities. Well, I don't think they're going to let me in. And even if they did, I wouldn't feel safe in doing it. But having some kind of meaningful access is ultimately the only way to fully understand what is happening. The ability to talk with Uyghur communities, to understand and systematically research how their lives have changed. That is the only way we're really going to fully know what happened. I think I feel very confident from the evidence that I've been able to glean that it's going to paint a picture of human disruption and destruction, a rich set of cultural traditions that have been or are in the process of being destroyed. Does that mean the end for the Uyghur people? Too early to say. You know, historical memory is a very powerful thing. Mm. You know, communities do have a way of reinventing themselves. But unless we see a dramatic change in Chinese government policy, you know, over time, you know, I'm not that optimistic about the end result. But it's important to remember, you know, China's changed before. I've got to have a sense of optimism. The changes from Mao to Deng Xiaoping were remarkable. 
and you and I, you know, experienced that firsthand when we were walking down the the Bund last time both of us were in China. Mm, and so yeah. it's important to remember that. In my view, China's gone down the wrong road under Xi Jinping, becoming a more repressive country domestically, a more assertive country internationally. But that could change with the overthrow, the death of Xi Jinping. People's Republic of China have reinvented itself numerous times, as has the Chinese nation and mm. people. James Leibold, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Matt. Nice to be with you as always. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can follow James on Twitter. He is at jlibold, and you can follow Latrobe Asia. We are at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening. <laughs>